if I didn't meet and marry my wife, I'd be a hardworking, diligent uh, young man, and I'd probably be 130 kilos and chronically ill. I would, I would just, you know, for me, when I'm busy, I just eat. I just shove food in my face, and I like being busy, and I don't want to think about what I eat. That's just the way I'm wired. So th- there would be no farm business if it wasn't for my wife uh, coaching me along on this lifestyle journey. Inside of the city, the people are crazy. Out of their minds, they ain't got a clue. We gone away, headed west for Montana. Left family and friends, all I got now is you. We both got new jobs, a host and a homestead, thinking this was the life. All that there'd be After our firstborn You had to stay home That's when the work Got in the way for me Well I started Farm hop life You'll come to your farm To help and to wander Me and the family A truck and an RV Send us a message and there will be. This is the Farm Hop Life Podcast, a traveling homestead family. I'm Matt DeRozier. I have today Jake Wolke of Wolke Farm and Wolke Butchery of Australia. Uh, let me embarrass myself for just a minute. I'm not sure what it was, but something I saw that stuck with me that you were, I was, I was so, I was so sure that you were in New Zealand. You are not in New Zealand. <laughs> uh, so we figured it out uh, last minute and now we're here. Thanks for being here, man. Absolute pleasure. So let's, let's get into it uh, chronologically here. So you, you got your, you got up to grade 10, worked at your uh, mom and dad's like uh, music shop. And then they like, that was going under like the, the industry was changing because of uh, the internet and then you got into bikes and you did that for a while and now you shifted into, into farming. So, so how do you go from done some homework? (laughs) Not as much as I like, but uh, I did a little bit. So how do you go from bikes to being a rancher? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different steps along the way, but uh, my family and I purchased the bike shop that we still own in 2011 and in 2013, we purchased a commercial property in town, which was an old derelict bowling club. It actually had squatters in the clubhouse. And we <laughs> developed that and built a new big bike shop. And we, in 2014, we moved into that bicycle shop and we had a corner. It's quite a big store. So the footprint's about 800 meters squared. I guess you'd triple that for feet, uh, roughly. And we cut a corner out to put a cafe in there. And the cafe for us was a supportive business for the bicycle shop we thought you know the lycra lads can roll through on their morning ride and grab an espresso and a croissant and keep going and for us it was just really about building a hub to support the main family enterprise which was the bike shop and still is and so my my wife who was my girlfriend at the time and was running that cafe for a little while and then she had our first son so i took it over as well as the bicycle store we made some changes and just somewhere along the way uh, I guess my wife kept prodding me about my own health issues. I've had um, 
allergy issues, skin issues, like uh, in the, like digestion issues. Nothing uh, that I would say was like uh, extremely chronic or debilitating, except for my hay fever and allergies during the middle of spring and early summer. But I just accepted most of them that they were just part of life. Everyone probably deals with this stuff. Just get on with it. Go to work. Blow your nose. You know try to hide it from customers so you don't look like you're falling apart and, and don't want to be there. <laughs> and my wife's very health conscious and her family are in tune with how they feel. Maybe almost too much because they're always uh, nursing something or or uh, contending with something. I think there's a fine line between tuning in with your body and then just getting on with it and muscling through. There's something in the middle. But we ended up starting to figure out that the things that we ate made us feel better and worse, which when you're in this space now, it's like, you know, good job, Sherlock. It's not rocket science. But when you don't come from that background, you know, food, right. food, you just grab food and you just eat it. And so I went down a bit of a rabbit hole. Uh, I was following Justin Rhodes on YouTube when he was doing mm, the Great yeah. American Farm Tour. And I remember, I actually remember ex- sitting down watching the video where he was at uh, Paul Gauchy's Back to Eden Garden and looking at the the deep bedding in the orchards and pruning the trees and i was doing a lot of gardening and uh, orchard work at, on the family farm at the time my parents property just because i loved it and a little thumbnail popped up on the side and I was, it was it was more justin rose clickbait and it said something to the effect of you know this man buys land at 30 dollars an acre and i knew it was clickbait uh and i clicked on it and it was justin rhodes on his tour visiting joel salatin and the, t- the tagline was with $30 per acre of infrastructure, he doubles his productivity. And I thought, this is cool. Like, I wonder if I can do this on my dad's farm, if I can double our productivity with a bit of water and wire. And uh, we, we've, we've, you know, well and truly spanked that. I don't even know what the multiplier would be now. But uh, it, it, it's, you know, it's gone from being a, a hobby farm that probably turned over $60,000 of uh, revenue a year just by set stocking a couple dozen steers to generating over a million dollars a year in revenue just with a bit of management. Wow. That's impressive. Good for you, man. Super Thank impressive. You. So yeah, you mentioned well, a million dollars. Australians, not quite the same as a million dollars us. <laughs> hey, you hit, you hit uh, seven figures, right? That's all that matters. <laughs> oh, well, you know, what do we say at home? We say, uh, turnovers, vanity, cash flow, sanity, and um profit is king i don't think i've ever heard that before yeah well there's a lot of like there's a lot of construction companies in australia doing hundreds of millions of dollars of turnover a year and going insolvent yeah i could see that that makes a lot of sense yeah you touched on touched on kind of like just food is food and eat what's available kind of thing but because that's just like the standard right like western diet but you don't until like, like, like you said, unless you grew up in it or until you notice how it makes you feel, you had to learn it. You had to learn it the hard way. Like, well, you have to, you have to unlearn it and relearn it. You know, <laughs> the true. food pyramid, which we now know is corrupt uh, and, and was suspect the whole foundation of the thing that was taught to me in school, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I, I remember for most of my life, I'd eat a piece of steak and I cut the fat cap off the porterhouse at a restaurant and leave it behind because I felt guilty eating it. But I wouldn't think twice about having three large glasses of Coca-Cola with my dinner and finishing it up with a 
big scoop of ice cream and some chocolate syrup on top because that was a special treat. That was okay. But the yeah. fat cap off the grass-fed porterhouse steak was uh, so bad for me that I had to do the right thing and leave it behind. It's sure. brainwashing. So let's talk about let's talk about your setup. What was what was the infrastructure like before like before you took it over? So like what what did your dad or your parents have for their hobby farm? So the hundred acres they purchased almost twenty years ago. Uh, dad put a big nice big shed on it, big four bay shed. He ripped out all the old fences. It was an old dairy that got subdivided and sold, so it had a lot of uh, rundown. Uh, fences dad ripped all the fences up and one of his best mates who was a stock agent told him where to put all the new fences so we split the 100 acre property which is uh, a bit over 40 hectares for the aussies listening and the kiwis uh they split that into five paddocks with all nice new shiny fences gal galvanized pickets barbed wire on the top hot wire in the middle half of it had cyclone wire and all sorts of stuff really nice quality fences for, for in my point of view most of them are in the wrong place now, but that's really what, what was there. There was a shed and five paddocks. That's so like no, no waterers, no, um, there was, well, there was two, there's two dams on the property that oh. just fill up with rainwater and there's no, uh, there was no pump system or it like, we don't irrigate the, the waters purely just for livestock. I'm curious. What's, uh, what's your annual like rainfall like? Yeah, uh, well, the last couple of years have been extremely wet, but we're normally around uh, 760 millimeters. I'm trying to think off the fly what that is inches. It's 20 something inches, I think. That's all right. Yeah, I don't. 30 I don't inches. Do 30 inches. That's not 30. bad. That's not bad. Yeah, it's it's not a dry area. Like we have, we have beautiful. We have four seasons. Uh, not. We don't have wet seasons like what, uh, or, or, or rather, a winter season like what an American would reference because we don't snow here. But we get we get below freezing frosts, you know. So it's cold, and we're wearing jumpers and and uh, gloves sometimes. And summer's very hot. Summer's brittle here, so we we get uh, well above a hundred Fahrenheit. You know, we're like the the hottest summers, the hottest weeks here are forty three degrees Celsius, which is uh, it. It's an assault on the senses. It's really unpleasant. Pretty dry heat, terrible. Yeah, and that. So we have normally four to five months of our farm being brittle. If you, if you, you know, do the holistic management with Alan Savory, we we would generally have four to five months of brittle, non-growing season. Uh, but we grow springs very productive, so we can generally stockpile enough to get through. So, taking over those five paddocks. And the hundred acres, what what was the first thing that you did, or like, you know, how did you? I mean, like, did you right away start with cattle, or what? What was that first step? So, so Dad always had cattle. He'd normally just traded in forty yearling steers, and he'd move them from one paddock to the other for all the good seasons. And then when the feed ran out, he'd open up all the gates and let them forage whatever they could from around the farm, sort of backwards, mm. I guess, when you think about it now in hindsight but that's just what we're told to do uh very minimal spraying or fertilizer but he was doing a bit of super a bit of lime he'd, he'd have a contractor come in and spot spray some broadleaf and that sort of thing we haven't had any synthetic fertilizer on the farm for about eight years and we haven't had any spot spray or uh you know herbicide pesticide for about six or seven years now 
because they, you know, the last contractors hadn't been for a couple of years before I took over. First thing I did was I actually got on Facebook and bought a caravan for like $400 and stole my dad's 40 chickens that he had in a little barn next to the shed and put them in the caravan and it bought an electric net and started trying to move them around every week. And it was an absolute nightmare in hindsight. You know, the amount of hours <laughs> I tipped into just 40 chickens, you know, we would run a thousand chickens now in, in a quarter of the time compared to what I used to put into those 40 chickens because I didn't modify the trailer at all. So I just put milk crates on the wall with some bedding in them for them to lay their eggs in. I didn't rip the floor out. So they were just defecating on the floor all night and I was filling it up with uh, wood shavings and sawdust. I literally just drilled holes in the side of the caravan and stuck branches in it so they could perch on branches. The water was in a, a drum that I'd have to take off, take up to the house, fill up with a hose, bring back on the forks of the tractor and put it back on the drawbar of the of the caravan. You know, Everything was an absolute uh, nightmare in hindsight. But at the time, <laughs> I was loving it. This was, this, was, this was not a job for me. This was not an enterprise. This was my hobby that I'd go and do after work and on the weekend and I just had so much fun watching what the birds would eat and watching the quality of the eggs change through the seasons and uh, mucking out the shed, turning the muck into compost. I just had so much fun with it. And while that was going, we purchased, uh, the farm was empty because coming out of the 2019 drought, it was pretty dry and we destocked. The farm was dust essentially. And we purchased 20 Hereford heifers, which we still had no infrastructure. So I was, I bought a couple polybraid reels and some step-in posts and I was trying to do daily moves with them as best I could bearing in mind that we didn't really have water anywhere so I'd have to fence up these enormous corridors back to dams and little creeks that had little ponds of water in them and stuff and again just an absolute nightmare the efficiency was woeful the systems were horrible but I was I, I didn't have any intention to do this as a business. I was just trying to grow a bit of produce for my family and I and I thought it was fun. For me, this is the this was the same as going in your backyard and uh, you know, picking out all the weeds around your carrots and watering them with your kids and having a nice evening in the backyard. This was my version of that. So do you man, did you ever take pictures of that old of that uh yeah. caravan? Man, I'd love sure, to sure. see a picture of that later. Yeah, I'll post That'd some stuff great. up on Twitter. I, I have shared it on uh, on socials occasionally. When it, whenever those pictures pop up on my Facebook as an annual memory, it normally gives me a reminder to to share it. And, uh, you know, one, I guess, poke a little bit of fun at myself, but two, uh, motivate people that you don't have to start with a 1,000 chooks. You don't have to start with 5,000 chooks. Just get the chooks you've already got and move them around. There you go. So, so you've got – how'd you – what – at what stage did you bring the pigs in? Well, probably not far after that. I bought two pigs from friends of mine that have an egg farm down the road, uh, some Berkshires. Oh, sorry. No, they weren't. They were uh, Wessex Saddlebacks, lard pigs. And I just threw them in one of the dam paddocks. I'll show you photos of that too. But they just it was a, probably a five-acre paddock, and they just destroyed that paddock. Absolutely uh, tanked the water quality because they're always wallowing on the side of the dam. I wasn't rotationally grazing them. There was no grass in there anyway. I was just feeding them some house scraps. And I used to go down to the local ag shop and buy 20 kilo bags of whole grain wheat and barley and feed it to them, you know, at full retail rate. Just fed, it, fed them whole seeds, didn't even mill it or crush it or roll it or anything. Just had absolutely no idea. And uh, those two pigs, when we slaughtered them and ate them, my wife and I said, you know, we feel really good because prior to that, we'd been 
you know, we cook at home and we make some meals and I, I'm not a great cook and my wife is a great cook. And I said, I need a few meals under my belt for when we have kids that I can bring some uh, offerings to the dining table. And my wife's not, you know, they, they do the gestation, they do labor, then they breastfeed for two years. It's like, when are we going to step in and uh, help a little bit? So I thought I'll cook a couple of nights a week. And I was trying to perfect the pork belly. I was online watching Jamie Oliver and Gordon Ramsay, learned a few new swear words and <laughs> making these pork bellies. We just always felt sick. We always had indigestion and stomach cramps and I'd get diarrhea. And after a few months, my wife's like, you've got to stop cooking this pork. Like, I just can't handle pork. We've never been big pork eaters before. And then we raised two pigs. Why would you raise pigs if you were allergic to pork? It's how it seems, right? But then we started eating that pork and we found that we felt great afterwards. Not only did we not feel bad, but we actually felt great. And that was a real paradigm moment for us. It's in, and that's when we started to think this whole, uh, you are what you eat and you're also what you eat ate. And maybe the welfare and the contextual environment of where that animal's kept has some long-term effect on the quality of the food and the health of the uh, animals, us eating it. And so they were, those pigs in hindsight were raised woefully, especially when you can compare it to the standard of what we're doing now with our pigs. But you just have to start, you know, perfection's the enemy of progress. You just need to get out there and give it a go. So then you had the cows, had the chickens, got the pigs. You have, you have sheep as well. Is that correct? Yeah, I've only really got sheep in the last few months. We, we've, uh, about a year ago, we started buying... Uh, like store lambs, you know, little lambs, live weight around 20 to 25 kilos. And I bought a hundred in and we were moving them. We trained them the hot wire. We'd move them every couple of days. And then when they started hitting slaughter weight, about 50 kilos is when we do that here in Australia. I started sending them through to the butchery. And now next week I've got, I've got no lambs on the farm right now, but next week I've got 80 in lamb maiden ewes coming to the farm, a shedding composite which will start to, uh, we're actually going to join them with our cattle and run a flood just for our management sake, uh, efficiencies and do our daily moves, pardon me. And I'm really excited to getting some lamb on the floor because in Australia, it's a hugely popular meat. And the, there's two reasons I'm putting lambs in. The first reason is my main farmhand, uh, I call him Mr. Michael. His name's Michael, but I call him Mr. Michael because I think it sounds fun and he always gets a bit shy when I do it. But uh, Mr. Michael's got a lamb background. He was roused about. He used to shear. He's worked at a lamb feed lot uh, before he's been with me. He's been with me for three years now. So since the beginning, essentially, he, he came on part-time just because he believed in the dream and, and wanted to work in an environment where it just wasn't plagued by uh, death and pharmaceutical inputs. And, and you know, we've, we've worked together for years. We've got a great working relationship. So he's sort of been, because he's a lamb guy, sheep guy, he's been pushing me to do it. And then when I did the first lot, I couldn't believe how well it sold and how good the economics are. You can, you, you know, the, the timeline is so much faster to cattle and the cost of processing is, because we've got our own butchery and we're doing our own processing now, the cost and efficiencies of butchering them is so much better and you can use a lot lower skilled labor to do lamb because there's only a few cuts. You, you know, there might be 12 different cuts out of a sheep, but a, a cow's got dozens and dozens of cuts and it's very... Uh, labor intensive and skill intensive to figure out properly what you're doing with a with a beast with a cow sure let's let's get into the the butchery here so it seems like you solved a problem at least you have a solution to a problem there's many solutions obviously that every rancher has it's like how do i get the most money for my product without having to compromise much on on my values 
I live in I live in Montana. I I see more cows on my way to town than I do houses. And so, you know, everyone pretty much does it the same way. Um, most of it's grass fed, probably grain finished. I haven't I haven't asked specifically. Um, but then they're compromising, right? So, and and who knows where they sell it to? Uh, feedlot, wherever, right? So. How did you come up with the idea to do the butchery? Well, in Australia, the the abattoir, which I think you guys call the slaughterhouse or the processing plant, mm-hmm. uh, they they slaughter the animal, but then it has to be consigned to a local certified boning room, which is where the butchers are. Uh, so the, the abattoir has a truck and it delivers it. So if you want to sell your meat direct to consumer, you need to find a local butcher that'll partner with you and sell you their labor to, to cut up. This is, this is a great relationship potentially, but I just found it wrought with issues. And I'm not throwing any mud at the great butchers that helped me out along the way, but their volume's small because they've already got a business that they're busy working in and their, their focus is filling up their glass cabinet and servicing their customers. Uh, and then if you if you have more volume than one, what one butcher can handle, you're having to use multiple butchers. So your uh, quality control, your label style, the positioning of the label, the, the way you want things cryovac bagged or clean wrapped all falls apart. And as a guy with a retail background, product presentation and consistency means a lot to me. So I just found the whole thing very unsatisfactory. And then you throw the curveball in that we're hippies and we want to do preservative-free and we want to do dry cures, and we want to dry age, and we want to do all this. We want to find the bavette steak out of the beast and all these weird cuts no one's ever heard of. And and it just became a little bit too much. And, and I was chatting to my dad about it. He said, well, you just need to buy your own boning room. And I jumped on you know, real, commercialrealestate.com or whatever, and there was a butchery uh, freehold building for sale. So there, there was a business in town called Peters and Sons. It had been a butchery for 75 years. Uh, they retired, the son retired, sold the business. Uh, the person that bought the business uh, went insolvent after a couple of years. And so the owner liquidated all the equipment inside and he was selling the building. And I thought, great, there's there's three cool rooms, one walk-in freezer, there's a boning room. It was cheap. I thought I'm going to buy that. Like I thought it was very well priced for what it was and for what it gave us. So I purchased it spent way more money renovating it to get it up to code than I thought I would because I bought it and it had not long been trading, right? But when you're being uh, audited as a going concern, it seems to be a little bit more lax than when you start up with a brand new uh, audit process. So I had to spend a lot of money, way more than I thought, fixing it up, sealing the floor, painting the walls, you know, fixing coving, all of these sorts of simple things. And then I put an ad up. Found a fantastic butcher who's still with me today. Uh, Richie's been with me for over two years now. Now we've got a second butcher in there, Larry. And we're doing all of our own custom processing. So all the all the beef, pork, chicken, lamb, wild harvest venison that we get comes back to the butchery. The boys know how I want it cut up. I just write a little list. So this week we had 10 pigs and a body of beef come in for us. And I just wrote on the board, you know, I just, these are the, I need some pork belly. I need some pork chops. I need some rump steaks, but they're the things I need. But apart from that, you just cut whatever you think the animal lends itself to, whatever the best cut is for, you know, because different animals, if it's a bit of a a leaner animal, you you might want to do a rolled roast instead of a, a, you know, a barbecue chop out of a lamb or something. So I'll let the butchers make those calls generally. 
And we offer that service for 15 local farms now. So other farms that want to process their meat and go to the farmer's markets or something. And, and we don't have a front of house to worry about in the traditional sense that these other butchers do. Where they're, they are our customers. They're not our afterthought. They are our customers. So when they send us 20 lambs or half a dozen pigs or two bodies of beef, we know we've got their custom printed label with their logo, with their ingredients list. We know how they like it bagged. We can pack their boxes ready for the courier to pick up. But beyond that, they can pick it up from us and go to the local farmers markets or do their direct to consumer door drops. So, you know, that's been that's been very successful. And that keeps my two boys busy. You know, I probably would only need a butcher four, five days a week just to run our stuff. But this keeps two guys in full time employment. And then after getting all that set up and running for a couple months, I just had this empty retail space space out the front because it's a traditional butchery where they used to have a glass cabinet out the front, an enormous glass cabinet. I had to pull the windows out of the front of the building to get the glass cabinet out. It took eight <laughs> fellas to carry it out. It's an absolute nightmare. Those Jeez. things are you know, built to last, I tell you. And I just kept looking at going, this is a waste of space. And a, and a mate sort of uh, dangled a bit of a carrot in front of me to, to get something going. I said, I'm not interested in doing front of house. Like we just don't have the, we don't have the time. We don't have the volume. Uh, it's going to add some uh, overheads that I just can't handle. You know, to, to pay someone to sit there six days a week and scan meat in Australia is going to cost me $60,000 a year minimum, let alone the fact that I'm going to have to cover their sick days and holidays and find a second person to cover all their shifts, which will probably be me. And at that time, that year when I was thinking this two years ago, our farm was on track to do about four or five hundred thousand dollars revenue and all of that produce was already sold to our wholesale markets and our and our our restaurants and our direct to consumer channels so it's not like i had an extra 500 grand in stock to put out the front and even if i did sell half a million dollars of retail out the front of the store it still didn't justify to me paying someone to sit there and scan it it just i couldn't make it work in my head and then one day i thought i just need to make a big vending machine you know where people can just walk in swipe their card and hit j4 and the little twirly spring thing unwinds and a t-bone steak falls down and they pick it out of the bottom so i got on ebay uh not on ebay i got on google and had a look around and there are vending machines where you can do that but they're they're small uh for the volume that i'll, I'll in the space i wanted to fill up and they're very expensive and proprietary Mechanical devices like that, in my experience, lend themselves to a lot of really expensive repairs all the time. Yes. So I was less interested in that. And then I thought, I just need to be, I need to build something myself. So I sleuthed around, couldn't find much. But what we ended up doing was taking the security entry system from a 24 hour gym. You know, you turn up to your 24 hour gym and you can hit your fob and it unlocks the door, or you can have a unique code and you can get in the door. So we got a custom built door with a gym styled uh, entry system. I put some security cameras in the building. I lined the walls with upright glass doored freezers, about 12,000 liters worth of space. And I found an app online called Express Checkout by a company called Future Proof Retail. And the customers just download the app on their phone for free. So their hardware becomes the checkout device. And they open the app where they're in the building. They scan the barcodes of all the packaged meat that's in the freezers. They hit pay and it syncs up to Apple Pay or Google Pay or they can edit in their uh, debit card details. Comes to us through Stripe. We lose about 2.5% to 3% in fees between Express Checkout and Stripe. And then they let themselves out of the building. Big Brother's watching on the cameras the whole time. And that's been going for uh, two, almost two years now. It'll be two years in April. That sounds awesome. That's amazing that 
you just kind of like worked through the problem, but you had to go through the steps that of like looking for a meat vending machine. Right. And yeah. Uh, you're like, man, this, this just isn't going to work. And man, I just, I just love that problem solving. That's, that's awesome. Love that. Well, every, just making every like off the shelf stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, and every liability that you're faced with is the opportunity to have, you know, create an asset solution because you're not the only person that has this issue, this, this uh, gap in production, this liability, and they're all opportunities. Like when the stock market crashes, cash crashes, that's when all the traders get the richest, like the people that know what they're doing. They've taken that liability moment and then turned it into an asset. Same with housing busts. Same with, so in our, in our farm and in, in all my businesses, when there's issues, systems that are clunky, customers that are dissatisfied, products that aren't working, we need to look at them with an open mind, not have, not be steeped in your own prejudice and bias and go, how can I, how can I weaponize this problem and create it into an asset for our business? And that's what we've done with the 24 seven butchery. And just to give a little bit of more context to your listeners who, who might not have heard about the system before, the, the memberships to the butchery are free. To get a membership, you have to come and do one of my free farm tours. I've been doing free farm tours at least monthly on my farm for three years now. We do we have 40 to 50 people come every month. And then during the month, I also have school tour groups, special interest groups like mums clubs and homeschool groups and all this sort of thing. And once you've done a farm tour with me, which is normally about three hours long, we go around and we look at all the production models and we talk about... Uh, the, the factory farm systems and where we differ and why we differ. If you finish that tour and you'd like to be a member, then I give you your unique code, which costs you nothing and you can gain entry. And I do that to proof people, to screen people a little bit. Uh, I also do it so when they walk in the butchery and they see the price of the goods and the maybe the inconsistent supply of the goods, they can understand all these things because they've uh, they've literally stood in front of me for three hours and, and, and listened to me wear my heart on my sleeve about why these systems are the way they are. And it's just been working really well. It's, we're two years in now. We've had no theft in the system. So getting telling your story, being honest, operating with integrity and letting your community buy into your story uh, is extremely powerful. What, what really drew me to you is that I saw saw the infamous video at this point, right. Of, uh, you know, you going through like giving like a little tour of your butchery and like, it just looks super clean, crisp, like well done, very nicely displayed. And then I'm like, wow, this is awesome. This, it, uh, this could be applied to almost anything. And then in the comments, people, you know, people are like retweeting it and blah, 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 you know, Oh, there's, you know, way to take jobs away from people and blah, blah, blah. And you like, I'd like the way that you fired back at them. Um, because, because people, people just kind of complain like that there's not enough jobs. Like that, that's not true right now. Like today, like if anybody that wants a job can go get a job, it's not the number of jobs. <laughs> it's, it's the quality of the jobs and like what you, you took away is like, Oh, so like you're saying that farmers shouldn't get like the people that, you know, raise their product shouldn't get paid a fair rate. Um, so instead of it being the number of jobs, like the, the quality, like shouldn't you get paid for your labor, like what it's actually worth instead of like having to like it get chiseled out from, from consume, from what the consumer pays to what the, what the rancher actually gets paid. I mean, there's a big difference. Like let's make up that gap. I, I like that. 
hundred percent. And there's so many topics that people gave me some grief about. And to be clear, you know, it was it was ninety nine point five percent support. Uh, but everyone's saying, "Great job! You know, you've done a good thing. Thanks, whatever, whatever it was." I just gave them a, a, a thumbs up or a or a pat on the back or thank you very much and moved on because it's sort of weird to uh, basking congratulatory right. speech, you know, it's strange. But this is a, this is to riff on what I said earlier. Every liability is an untapped asset. When people are slagging uh, your business, your decisions, and your integrity in public, potential liability. Uh, but you've got a, you've got a platform and an opportunity to plead your case, and it's not about fighting with the nupties because the person you're actually engaging with, you're never going to change their mind because the way the internet works is you just continuously double down, and then when you got nowhere else to go, you block them. <laughs> That's right? true. But the other people reading the comments, you know that that video has a couple thousand uh, comments on TikTok and a million views, so there's a lot of people that are reading it and watching it and not commenting. So you've got a platform now where you can address the critics and put whatever argument you want forward. And a lot of people are going to read it. So I engage with those people in good faith, not because I'm so concerned about changing their mind and opinion of me, but just so other people read it go, oh, yeah, he is ruining jobs by having an automated butchery. Oh, no, he actually said that he values uh, stewardship on his farm hire and would rather uh, redirect all the saved labor onto his farm to steward his animals and his environment to a higher level. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I understand that now and they keep strolling. So I got, I got spanked for a heap of different reasons and they were all, they were all a nonsense. You know, if you could rub two brain cells together, you could understand, you, you know, I was, I'm giving everybody my full financials and, and, and all my reasoning. I've got nothing to hide. And it was, it was very, the strangest thing for me is obviously these people don't know my personal situation, but I employ, uh, 50 people in the local region through my other businesses and to be assaulted uh, for being a job destroyer when my track record is a payroll that's over $30,000 a week was a really strange feeling. I'm like, I employ heaps of people and I'm really proud about the fact that my family uh, does this and we do it reasonably well. Like we've got a good track record with it. And it's just, I had somebody email me this morning, a little bit of hate mail, which I'm getting uh, more and more, which is fine and said, go smoke more crack, you cocaine addict. And I'm thinking, I've never even smoked a cigarette. It's just a weird <laughs> thing to say to somebody. Like, what mate, What about me screams crack addict? I'm, I'm almost as straight so, edge as you could become. That is so odd. That is such a weird... <laughs> they took the time to write that, of all things. Oh, it was, to... that, was, that, was the, that was the sign-off line. It was a big email. I've read it out oh, loud. I've, uh, I've presented it like a speech to three or four people so far because I find it so humorous. That is pretty funny. I'm gonna have to go. I'm gonna have to go find that. Um, I'll screen. I'll screenshot the email and I'll send it to you after the. Chat. All right. You can post it on your timeline if you want. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Yeah. What's funny is the people that complain about the jobs. I guarantee you that they're pain in the ass employees wherever they work. Like they don't. Hundred percent. Yeah. That's just they. They don't yeah, get so they, it. So they don't. They don't create any jobs, and they're most likely painful employees. And and if you click on their profiles, it's all you know communist hammer and sickles and all this sort of stuff <laughs> but you know all to to be honest all that's fine and i don't mind addressing it but at the end of the day for me it all becomes a distraction and i've sort of stopped engaging in it to a degree because i'm here to advocate for better farm systems treating animals better healing landscapes feeding families food that heals their bodies so to argue about job creation in my 24 7 butchery although there's a discussion to be had there it is a distraction as to what we're driving towards as a farm business. So a little bit more about the butchery. 
and the farm. What role does your wife play in the business? Oh, my wife's the uh, the matriarch of the Wolke World. Our company name's actually Wolke World Proprietary Limited here in Australia. So I guess there would be no farm business if it wasn't for my wife, Anne, because the health journey would never have started. I'm six foot tall. And when we got married, I was 103 kilos. And like I said earlier, I wasn't a picture of health. And my wife's uh, a beautiful in-shape lady and she is a picture of health and what she saw in me uh begs to be discovered and i'm i'm, I'm feeling incredibly grateful and blessed that she just stooped to my level to uh, <laughs> join me in holy matrimony but i would be i i have no doubt that i would be a if i didn't meet and marry my wife i'd be a hard-working diligent uh young man and i'd probably be 130 kilos and chronically ill I would, I would just, you know, for me, when I'm busy, I just eat. I just shove food in my face and I like being busy and I don't want to think about what I eat. That's just the way I'm wired. So th there would be no farm business if it wasn't for my wife uh, coaching me along on this lifestyle journey. And then in the actual day-to-day -day of the business now, she does all of our pickling and preserving. So everything that comes out of our market garden and orchard, we basically can uh, value add to shelf stale stable products because when you've got a tree giving you 80 kilos of peaches one one in in a one week window one time a year it's really hard to market that we don't go to farmers markets because in our re in our area they're an absolute waste of time they're very they're very quiet and i wouldn't give up my weekend for the effort uh, we've tried we've done we've done a lot of them and we're not interested anymore so what do you do with these peaches well you preserve them and you value add to them and then they can sit on the shelf the next six months and you've got pickles for next for six months and all of a sudden you've got a product that you can offer year on year so my wife does all of that she's an amazing home cook we ran an event at our farm uh, two weekends ago called the australian beef initiative with some local uh, beef gurus some health gurus some bitcoin gurus all these people came together it was just an awesome event we had 100 people on the farm for the day and i Guess I was involved in conceiving that event and painting the big picture of the vibe, who we're going to attract, how it was going to work. And my wife created the poster. She created the Eventbrite description. She released the tickets for sale. She organized the hire chairs, the hire misting fans. She did all the catering. She hired all the staff. She organized emptying the shed and setting it up like an event space. Like she did everything because I'm, I'm like, I, I was there with her that whole thing, but she really took the lead on that because I'm sort of a bit distracted in my head. I want to go to the butcher and pack orders and, and get on Facebook and sell another uh, ton of sausages and do all that business stuff. So I just sort of big picture and deadlines and and my wife's a lot more organized and she's, she's a force of nature. All this, mind you, while she's 20 weeks pregnant with our third child. That's awesome. Congratulations, man. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's a good setup to have those because it'd be if you were two were too similar, I feel like it would just be like a bunch of headbutting. Like, no, I want to, you know, arguing over details, but the fact that you guys can work together but also have your own like areas you're focused on, that works pretty well. Well, you want you want to be your complementary opposite, don't you? And I'm I'm big picture, uh, she's details, and our values are aligned. So if you marry somebody with aligned values. You know, like theoretically, I would I would argue that the person you marry should probably uh, vote similar, have similar opinions on 
uh, the way you want your family to look, the activities you want, the way you manage your finances, and those things should be organized and discussed. And, and ideally, they should be the reason that you're attracted to each other in the first place before you sign on the dotted line and get along with it. That's very, very true. Yeah, that's fantastic. That Because uh, I was... Cause when I messaged you about like, Hey, I also want to ask like curious how much involvement your wife was in. Cause you know, this little thing that I do, what we're doing right now, like my wife is watching the kids right now. And I couldn't, yep. I couldn't have the, have the two of them running around in here screaming and <laughs> trying to pull, pull down the microphone or whatever. So, I mean, just, just see where the, where the help comes in. So, um, absolutely. Has anyone tried to copy your business model yet? With the butchery? Yeah. Uh, I've probably had 100 people message me, how do you do it? I want to know how to do it. Every single, depending on how busy I was at the time, I've given them all slightly different answers. If I was real busy, I just sent them my mobile number and I said, call me tomorrow. Uh, hmm. Most of them never called, never followed up again. You know, I've had, I've, I've had other moments where i've sent them decent length emails with information some people i've just getting dot point really if i was efficient i'd just write a little uh, a4 page about it and i just flick everyone a link every time the question came in but i've had two farmers one in australia and one in america that i have got to the stage where i've zoomed them and we've sat online and we've spoken face to face about the ins and outs of it for about 90 minutes each and this is all free i haven't charged any uh, time or consulting because I'm just really interested to see if anyone else can pull it off. Uh, but at this stage, no one that I know of, there, there, there's been 10 people also make pretty bold statements. We're going to do this hundred percent. We're committed, but I haven't seen any uh, personally, I haven't seen any progress or results of that yet, but it's early days. It's really not difficult. Like what I said before was exactly what we do. We have a 24 hour gym door entry system we use an app called express checkout that feeds into stripe and we've got surveillance cameras that's it that's all it is no, you, Under, it would almost in, be in, too arrogant all... to just Go have ahead. some to tell someone it's like yeah just just look me up i i've, I've covered this probably 50 times already because like just looking for uh looking for a little like research to listen to other podcasts i don't even know how many how many times your name came up <laughs> I think I asked yeah, I, you. You, know, I don't, you sort of become a little bit of a, um, on one hand, doing all these podcasts and having this media flurry, you do talk about the same talking points all the time, but it is a really great opportunity to um, hone your blade, you know, sharpen your axe and, and try to figure out the best way to articulate your your message. So I mean, I'm incredibly grateful for all the platforms, big and small. Like I've been on some pretty uh, decent Mickey Mouse good audience podcasts and some smaller ones. And they're all lots of fun to me. And the, probably the best thing I get out of all of them is networking with the actual interviewer and building. So, you know, after this, we're buddies. We've been speaking for an hour and a half. We sort of know right. each other better than most people that just pass each other on the internet. So I think that's lots of fun. That is. Uh, so it's just, it's just your products in the butchery. Is that right? At the front, we're only selling... Walkie Farm products. We're not we're not selling any of the other farmers because we but just don't the need their produce. Yep. That all goes out the back. That all gets processed and out the back door back to their consumers. We are very close as a business. 
you know, with the way our websites are and our in our sales are and everything, if I I haven't spent a cent, like I've done a few Facebook sponsored ads years gone by, but in the last twelve months, I haven't spent a cent on marketing. On our website, I've got uh, you know the Google Pixel built into the back of the website for Facebook. I've got uh, lead ads and funnels ready. We've got the the shopping cart. It's pretty basic, but we're adding more items to it. I'm just, I'm not giving, people can't buy a scotch and a porterhouse and a pack of mints. They're going to be buying 10 kilo mixed beef box or, you know, just mix things. I, I can't do all this cut by cut stuff and I'm not interested in it. And I'm not finding that I need to. And we currently accept uh, Australian dollar. We're also going to be accepting uh, Bitcoin on the website shortly because I'm sort of getting, becoming more and more involved in that community here in Australia. But there is so much demand that I really believe as soon as I turn on the AdWords spend and direct market some people in Melbourne, which is our closest city to us, it's three hours south of us on the main highway, I can just feel it going berserk. Like I'm, I'm packing, you know, five, six boxes a day at this point without any advertising. And that's basically got us on the limit of our production. Now, obviously, I can ramp out production, but what's the lag time for ramping beef production? You know, if you want to do it in a organic sense, that's not going to require a huge amount of cash flow. I've got to breed cows, retain the steers and heifers and get them to slaughter weight. We're talking two and a half, three years. If I want to do it really quick and buy in yearling steers and then do daily moves and grass finish them on my farm for six or eight months, that's a lot quicker, but it's an absolute cash flow suck buying in all these animals. You know, and then you've got other enterprises that I can scale really quick, like chicken. I can scale chicken in 50 days and I can have more chicken. Lamb's pretty quick. Pig's exceptionally good. But something I put to my my customer base publicly, because I like to have these conversations publicly. So I went on all my socials and I said, guys, this is where we're at. You, our customers, have been supporting us since 2019 when we started. What would you like? Would you like us to remain 100% Wolke Farm produce? We grow and we raise everything as best we can but we have clunky supply and we're not able to meet the market? Or would you rather me uh, buy carcasses over the hook of other local producers that I already work with? I've already got a business relationship with them through the butchery and I'm impressed with how they manage their animals. How would you feel about me buying that over the hook and selling that under the label? And 100% of the feedback I received from all social areas was, Jake, we trust you to go after these other farms and purchase their material and it was twofold it was one because it's going to mean you can keep our supply and we want the supply coming and and we trust you because of how honest and transparent you are about things like i think if they'd all heard that i'd been doing that for six months all of them would have been disappointed but the fact that right. i've had this conversation openly first is an, is an asset and then secondly uh, they were all excited that these other local businesses were going to get supported because most of the businesses that i custom process for still sell a large amount of their animals into the commodity market at the end of the year. Their direct-to-consumer model might only be taking up 10, 20, 50% of their supply. They can't put it all through for a range of different reasons. So if I could soak that up and get them a few extra dollars through the bank, that was something that my customers were open about. So we're just in the pro we haven't done that yet. We're in the process of figuring out what that looks like. But maybe it's just as simple as the logo being slightly different. So instead of Wolke Farm, grass-fed beef, Maybe it says Wolke Farm and Friends Grass-Fed Beef or something like that. And then you, you go to our website and down the bottom of our grass-fed page, there's a profile on the two other local producers that don't drench. They do holistic grazing management and a bit of a profile on them saying these are the people that we rely on when our supplies dry up. That's that's interesting. I Because um, that's how I 
if I were to do it here, which I'm very interested, I'm trying to like work through like, okay, where would I even do it? You know, in the area that I'm at, you know, what's the infrastructure like? Da da da. I would I would bring in multiple multiple producers that you'd have to verify, you know, their their integrity to their livestock and their land. Um, just like what they what they say that they put into their feed. Like, is it is it organic? Is it do they actually like grain finish when they said that it's grass finish, you know, all these, all these things. Um, but I think it'd be a good way to, to help, like you said, like lift up other producers as well. And these are hard conversations to have with farms when you're onboarding them. These are conversations I'm having now because people get offended. If you, if you say, oh, so, you know, what's your, what's your parasite management for your cattle on the farm? You know, how do you, how do you handle that? And they go, well, you know, we just use a backline drench once a year look you know for the last four years we've told our customers that we don't drench and they get offended oh what would you rather our cows have worms would you rather them be sick sort of like well no you know there's other methods you could move them to fresh pasture more often and all of a sudden if they're having to drench or you know that they're not controlling their grazing plan and their landscapes the best they could be and it's a challenging conversation to have people the i guess the leg up that i have on this is i've been processing for 15 local farmers the last two three or the last two years and i already know half of them and personally through this working relationship and i know that they um, do it beautifully like i've been to their farms i've visited them i process their meat i know the quality of their meat and and they're great people with great production models so i'm i'm not having to go cold calling i'm just able to sort of fall back on pre-existing relationships but that's a that's something that you've you've got to do. You've got to qualify. You've got to have a standard. You've got to qualify that with your customers. Make sure that's what they want, and then you've got to onboard with integrity. That's um, man, that is that is quite the advantage. Like you kind of you kind of hit all the right steps. Like you you found the butchery like that to be bought. Like you were just looking for one, and one happened to be available, and then you you had the butcher shop, and then um you know took advantage of that front space to turn into your essentially your uh your meat vending machine and then um you have all these other connections with uh other producers as well i think uh i think you shouldn't have any trouble being able to fill those freezers yeah it'll be i i think i think it's going to be good it's going to be a good thing for the local region it's going to help other farmers level up their direct to consumer production when you do open to the public days, what's the turnout like? Well, I do monthly free farm tours, but I make people go online and book a ticket. They're a free ticket, but I found that if I do a tour with more than 40 to 50 people, the tour becomes clunky. The people at the back of the group, they dawdle, which makes the whole tour take longer because they walk slower. And then when we get to the pork enterprise and we're talking about the pigs in the paddock, they're chitter-chattering up the back. And, and it, it ruins the engagement of the group as a whole. The people at the front are less likely to engage. I've, this is something I've noticed through years of doing them. So now I cap them at about 40 tickets and they all sell out. Like every tour we have all, always books out at, at 40 tickets. And uh, last year in September, was it? We did a open farm discovery day. We wanted to just have no RSVP, 
no cost. We've got egg and spoon race, bobbing apple race. I really wanted to make it like a, a, a spring fair event for families to come and just, I'm really passionate about the farm becoming the community hub. You know, the, 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 there's not many community areas, like all the fates are sort of dawdling out of, and the circus isn't what it used to be. And, you know, I, I really think the farms have, farms have an amazing opportunity to launch themselves into these community spaces, which is going to benefit everyone. So we just said, let it rip, come along. There's a sausage sizzle where you can pay your $2 and get a sausage. And we had over 400 people come to that day. Jeez. Do you yeah, ever do... Stills. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the car park in the front of the uh, property was full and there was cars, you know, parked on the street, 250 meters long all, all, on both sides of the street. It was awesome. If you <laughs> were flying awesome. into Aubrey, it would have stuck out. You would have gone, what's going on over there today? <laughs> That's awesome. Do you ever do open like your butchery open to the public days? Yeah, so before the last couple uh, months where it was all crazy with all this media around the the butchery, and then we had a few big events, we were we were just about to start doing open days in the butchery monthly. We've been doing them quarterly, so it's just a Saturday. We're open eight till two. You can pay cash, you can pay credit card, you can use the app. Uh, come up. No membership required. Doors open. Ian's out the front again, doing a beautiful sausage sizzle with our with our snags and our sauerkraut and you know local cheese and all this sort of stuff. And we're we're about to fall back into that stride because they're they're a lot bigger. They're a lot better for us than going to a farmers market. If we open the doors for a day and do a couple specials, twenty percent off sausages, and I just look at my oversupplies and I go little discount here, big discount here. You know, we we do sort of anywhere from five to $7,000 revenue in those five or six hours. Uh, so, and, and it's a great, a lot of people, uh, well, not a lot, but some people just don't want the membership that they, they, they don't want their details on the system or they, they, mm. thought they think it might be too difficult for them or confusing. And so this way they're allowed to come in and access the meat and buy up for the next couple of months if they need to. Uh, and ironically, a lot of the people that have that opinion, when they actually turn up and see how easy it is, because I'm giving demos all day long, they, they generally sign up as well, because it might be confronting. You get a code and you let yourself in and you download the app, but it's so easy. That's actually a pretty good way to, to get people signed up. That's pretty smart. So then the new people that you sign up, eventually they have to come take a tour, or if they've been in the door, they've already taken a tour of your place. Uh, we've, we've let... To date, if you've come to the butchery for one of the butcher open days, we've let them sign up as well. Because again, it's a qualifying thing. They've get, they've got to see the produce in the cabinet. They get to talk to us. We've got pictures on the wall of all our animals, and we talk. It's not just hi, how are you? Would you like to be a member? It's a it's a real sort of vibey, chit chatter, sure. bustling couple hours. So we, we feel that it's on you know good enough to let people buy in. It's like a virtual tour. Yeah, I've done that <laughs> nice. too. <laughs> um have you ever looked at the analytics of your members like to see who's a member but who hasn't bought from you in six to 12 months or anything like that and have to yeah. call them up and be like hey like how what's what's mm -hmm. up so we we would have about 400 people with memberships at the moment and there would be uh about 80 75 to 80, so just under a quarter that have actually never activated their membership. So they've, they've huh. wanted it, they've come to a tour, they've asked for it, I've sent them an email, 
and they've just never turned up. So now when I send people their induction, I tell them that their code's got a 30-day uh, activation period. And if they don't do a purchase in those first 30 days, uh, it'll expire. And they can always contact me again and we can roll that again. But um, I think that's fair. I think uh, so. We've got about... We've got about a quarter, so about 100 again, that are reasonably active. So they'd, they'd, they'd be through every four to six weeks. Uh, and then we've probably got about, uh, I'd say, 20 or 30 that are hyperactive in there multiple times a week doing the, the bulk of the purchasing. And then there's a lot of very – like I've got one guy that comes in once every sort of four to six weeks because he lives up in Sydney, which is six hours away, but he, he drives for a job, so he comes through. But every time he comes through, he buys a thousand dollars of pork because he takes it home. He's, he's a Chinese man, and all of his family at home is mad about our pork. Um, so you know, China are big pork eaters, and this guy's a pork connoisseur. He was telling me he he sort of he almost figured out what breeds of pigs we use and everything based on the the way the pork looked and the flavor of it. Everything it was really interesting the first time no I met him. No way. So you know, so <laughs> he's awesome. not a frequent he's not a frequent shopper. Uh, but he's a big spender, and you know, so everyone's got their own thing. But I, I think I do need to get a little bit better at. Uh, I, ne I need to automate a way to uh, drop people off the back. I think, like, if if you've been in once in twelve months and it's obvious you're not interested, I think it should just um, void your number. And if you want to sign up again, let's have that conversation. But I think that's something that I need to improve on. Sure. I mean, you want, I mean, you're going through all this work just to get people to signed up and have engagement because, I mean, there's a lot of benefit for both you and the consumer. And so for them to just kind of fall off the track, essentially, like that was, that was a lot of effort for, for nothing. I mean, they wasted their yeah. time too. So. I mean, that's yeah, but I don't, I don't look at it as a waste because they've still they've still done a farm tour. They still understand what pastured eggs are, and they they understand sure. you know the difference between confinement factory uh, feedlotting of pigs and and you know I, I, and that tour was there was forty other people. So I don't I don't look at it uh, as a waste. So you brought up the uh, the beef initiative a little bit ago. So that was that was must have been two weeks ago. Um, yeah, how was that? How'd that go? It was great. We had Texas Slim from Texas come and give a presentation. He's doing a bit of a tour here in Australia. He's heading up and he's the founder of the Beef Initiative in the USA. We also had a couple of doctors come and give presentations. So a quite notable doctor here in Sydney. He's a gastroenterologist, Dr. Pran Yoganathan, came and he just had an awesome presentation just talking about uh, a, a species appropriate diet for humans, basically. And then we had another local doctor who's a GP, Max Golhane, who's got a podcast that I've been on a couple of times called, uh, oh, geez, he's going to kill me if I forget it. Is it called a Holistic Health Podcast? He gave a presentation on seed oils and compared them to animal fats. And that was, we sold out of all of our tallow 10 minutes after his presentation ended about 800 bucks worth of tallow, just like that. It was hilarious. That was really cool. And, you know, it was it was a great day. We had uh, a journalist from the ABC, which is the the local, I guess, like state based uh, radio, TV, newspaper show. So they've they've done quite an extensive write up that I shared on Twitter earlier that you can read. And interestingly, they said that we were a little bit fringe and we were anti government and anti health industry, and and conveniently forgot to note that there was two doctors speaking at the event. 
And there was another, you know, four or five doctors in the like notable doctors in the audience who who were like participating and 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 giving feedback, and they weren't just hiding their ranks in in the back row there. But it was a great day, awesome food. Did a big farm tour at the start of the day. Community, I had people come to me at the end of the event. I had a couple uh, people come up to me in tears. One lady said, "You know, I finally found my tribe." I've never found people that were on the same page in regards to diet and all these different things. I had another lady say, I've been wanting to quit my job, start farming, and this has given me the push. I'm I'm done. I'm gonna I'm gonna cash out. And like they they they're really cool. They're quite momentous milestones in these people's lives, and to have been the farm community center that could have facilitated those meetings and those gatherings is powerful. Like this is better than. Uh, Google AdWords, in my opinion, get boots on the ground, make new friends. You know, your friends won't become your customers, but your customers will become your friend. Matt, if you start this butchery and you try to get your cousins and your aunties and uncles and your and your high school friend involved, I almost guarantee you, most of them just won't be interested. It's really challenging as a business owner. You've got all these friends who want to want to give you a pat on the back and say you're doing a good job but when the when the rubber hits the road it's very hard to get friends and, and family especially involved in these things but you will attract like-minded people that share values and they'll very quickly become your friend circle like all of our nearest dearest friends that my wife and I share just about all of them now we met on farm tours which is hmm. just I think it shows you how powerful the farm of a place the farm is yeah that's that's very true now what uh... Going through like all these all these tours that I do locally here, like, yeah, I know that guy. Like, we're friends. Like, you know, I don't. Other than, I I, I have every everyone else is more like an acquaintance. We're like, mm-hmm. you know, into into raising chickens, buying good beef, buying good pork, buying good lamb. You know, those are priorities for us. And you get to know you get to know your farmer, you get to know your rancher. So, and what's to to summarize, how would you how would you label the beef beef initiative? What uh, for for those that don't, aren't familiar with it? Well, I guess it's a it's a group of uh, like minded people that want to defend beef. You know, beef is a superfood. Cows are not bad for the environment. Bad management of cows is is a negative toll on the environment. But cow like animals are the environment, so they can't just be default bad for the environment. So there's a little bit of apologetics there. We want to defend um, beef. We also want to shore up supply. So we want to build a decentralized network where we have access to beef for our families, for other people in the in the community that are interested in that. And so all that means is we just want to motivate and give a heap of other small producers the tools and the market access that they can start selling direct to consumer. So the beef initiative, when the website eventually launches, it's it's going to have functionality where you can look on a map at where you are and find all the local farmers that sell direct and you can just contact them and, and do a private sale. It doesn't have to be through the platform. We're not, we're not here to make bank out of it, but also giving those farmers that market access for people to find them, uh, helping them navigate the, the legal framework. Like the first time I sent an animal to slaughter, it was very confusing. Multiple phone calls to the butcher, mul- multiple phone calls to the abattoir. They're all busy calling the state food inspectors, trying, and they're all giving you slightly different answers. Once you've done it, like these things took me weeks to figure out. Same as getting my egg stamp when I had, because in Australia you need to have an egg license to stamp your eggs to, for retail sale. 
that took me probably a hundred hours of pulling my hair out, figuring out what infrastructure and what paperwork I needed. Now, if I now I've helped other farmers get their egg stamp, I've given them a one hour chit chat, then they've basically done everything they need to do to get it that afternoon. Like it's really not it's not difficult. It's just complicated. And if, if you have people that you can reference off and learn from, it's a lot easier. So it's a big community. If these people want a bit of help figuring out the the market and how it all works, you know, we talk to them, we coach it through it, tell them what a reasonable price for packaging is, maybe help them benchmark the pricing of where their food should be and, and, and how to market. So it's just, it's a, it's a co-op of helping facilitate market access and market demand and help, helping those forces find together, find each other. That's... And Bitcoin's a part of that. So it's not Bitcoin centric. You don't have to be a Bitcoiner as an alternative currency True. or store of value. You can come on and you can you can spend Australian dollars. I'm sure half of these farmers would give you a quarter of a beef for a day's labor on their farm or, you know, whatever. You could pay probably gold bullion or whatever you want, swap them a couple of chickens. But uh, Bitcoin's there if, if if you want it. And I'm finding in my business that advertising you accept Bitcoin makes you a bit of a magnet because there's people out there that want to spend it. So they're sure. buying beef off me, not necessarily because my beef's the best or the most convenient or the best price, but purely because I trade the way that they want to trade. And that's just me meeting the market. And you don't have to be a Bitcoiner to do that. You can receive that Bitcoin and cash it out for the day rate straight away. You know, no issues. It's... You don't have to be holding all this cryptocurrency or, you know, whatever sort of headspace you're in about it. So are you pretty new to Bitcoin then? For me, I've it's probably been about a year since I bought my first sats and probably the last four months where I've really started understanding how Bitcoin's different to other cryptocurrencies. And uh, the, in the, Australia, the boys in the Australian Beef Initiative have been integral to holding my hand through that journey because I get bored pretty quick watching these long-winded techie tutorials on YouTube. Sure. How old are you? 32. Oh, nice. Same. So yeah, I I'm, I'm with you where it's just like, man, I, I do not know what you're talking about and I do not have the patience to uh, hit rewind to try to figure it out right now. Like I'm going to, if, I, if I'm interested, I'm going to go listen to something else and then maybe it'll click. But yeah, it's it's a very slow burn for me to to, to come on board that way. Well, to, to orange pill people, orange pill is what the industry says to, you know, convert people to Bitcoin. Uh, and that's not my agenda. I, I, I'm, I'm animal systems, right? I'm not orange pilling. I don't care about defending employment, whatever it is. Beef pilling. Animal systems. <laughs> that's right. Beef pilling. But to orange to orange to start people on their journey is not telling them how good or useful Bitcoin is because it's it's uh, because it's not the mainstream currency. It's it's more difficult, I guess, to get involved and use. It's, it's, you have to go out of your way. But you can make people understand how crappy the current financial system is, and start them that way. So like, right. what's the U.S. national debt at the moment? I think it's I think it's like thirty one, thirty two trillion. <laughs> And, and I think there. if you roll if you roll all future obligations into that, you know, like the the, the current projected um, pensions and and you know and, and future bills, I think it's over two hundred trillion dollars if you put all obligations into it and interest. Sure. And what what conversation has the American government and policy writers had about paying that debt down? None. They just want to keep extending it. Same here in Australia. We haven't had a surplus since 
uh, our Prime Minister John Howard was in um, in in governance, and where print and it used to be. I remember ten years ago on elections, they'd be talking about writing a new budget that was going to pay down the debt. Now there's no conversation in any Western country about paying down the national debt. It's it's about more services, more support, more money. And where does it come from? They tax us and they print more of it. And they tax us by taking it out of our income, which is one thing. We want services, we want roads, we want hospitals. And if that if you're happy with your tax rate, that's fine. But when they print more of it as well, they're putting more money into the system and they're devaluing your purchasing power. It's another tax. Canada had a, if you look up the true inflation of Canada last year, not the reported inflation, but you can buy it, you can see online third party real inflation because the inflation basket, they don't count everything that actually impacts your life. Uh, was it Canada or the UK? I think it was the UK actually. It was 15 or 16%. So if you had $100 in the bank at the start of the year, at the end of the bank, your purchasing power is $85. And this system's not going to fix itself if there's no conversation. Like there's never going to be action to fix it because there's not even a conversation about it. And the track record speaks for itself. And this has been an exacerbated problem ever since we debased the dollar and took it off the gold standard. Now, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I'm some like financial expert and, and, and some, same. Um, you know, <laughs> same authority. But when you can just print more of it and you're unaccountable, like I personally know, I've got a friend who's from um, Zimbabwe. He's a little bit uh, younger than me. And his parents, which were business owners over there, had a tra- trucking company. They lost their entire net worth twice in their lives. They're still alive because of hyperinflation. They went to bed one night, business and savings and equity all going fine. They woke up the next morning, 4,000% inflation overnight, lost everything. My friend had enough for a house deposit and he woke up and he couldn't afford a bicycle. And that's because the government printed too much money and lost control of their... Um, and this happens all over the world. And it's happening now. It happened to Greece a couple of years ago. So That's it's right. not about being a conspiracy theorist or or wanting to cheat the government out of anything. It's nothing like that. It's just like the financial system we have is is obviously sick and broken. No one's having a conversation how to fix it. And at least the people involved in, in Bitcoin are aware of this. And, you know, they're, they're just trying to offer an alternative. And I think sure. that the alternative that they offer is the best presented to date. That's I, I agree with that. It brought up a lot of hard conversations about money that until recently, I don't think were really being had. At least not in like as wide as they're being spoken about today. Well, no one's going to get elected on paying down the debt because by default to pay down the debt, they're going to have to cut services and no one's getting elected on cutting services. Whatever, the, like what, even if they're good... Good services, bad services, controversial services. Everyone wants more services, so it's just a slow burn. Anyway, yeah. B, that's that's the that's the start of the rabbit rabbit hole. If the current system sucks, you have to, and, and that's something that's important to you. You have an obligation to yourself to explore what else is out there. Sure. Do you? Uh, really weird question. Do you ever have? You, do you have Bitcoin saved for either of your kids and your future children? <laughs> I, I don't have Bitcoin saved for my children. Both of my sons have fiat bank accounts. And sure. when I get home at the end of a day, we rattle out a bit of cash out of my pocket and I split it up between them and they put it in their uh, piggy banks. They're both still in the mindset where they want the largest coin. They haven't figured out the $2 coin is worth more than the 50 cent one because the 50 cent one's four times bigger. Uh, and I, I just sort of <laughs> let that. I'd rather them not fight over who gets the most value. So we just divvy it out based on size. They've both got uh, share portfolios 
So we we've set them up with our index funds when they were bought and we put a little bit of like my my five-year-old Otto has done extraordinarily well in the last five years out of his index funds. And when when family uh, wants to give us something for a present for our children, we'll say, you know, if if you like, uh, we don't we're not wanting for toys. We don't need for um I, and I don't want I don't want these little toys that are plastic and backlit and make noises all night long when you step on them when you're trying to get to bed. So I'm like, let us handle the toys. If you want to give us fifty dollars, we'll buy some shares for the kids and you know let it sit there. Uh, because I'm new at a Bitcoin and figuring it all out, it's it's just the, the the family's holdings at the moment. But I'm not sure. I'm definitely not opposed to setting it up for the children. But it's not about a free ride for the children. It's about financial literacy and understanding. You know, when Otto's first piggy bank, uh, we raided it about over a year ago. I said, "Do you want to put this in your bank and save it?" And tried my best to explain to a four-year-old at the time what saving was, or do you want Daddy to buy you a beehive and we can work on the beehive together? And then when you get the honey, you can either eat it, give it away as presents, or sell it. And he goes, I want a beehive. Music to my ears. We've got a little business. That's so, so awesome. We, so we went and bought a beehive. So it's about financial literacy. You know, like that's a time pit for me in an economic sense, like helping him with that. But that's what life is, holding your children's hand and, and teaching them. Instead of just turning the TV on and going, sit down, mommy and daddy are tired from being at work all day. Just sit down and be nice to your brother and watch Tom and Jerry. It's about letting them make mess, doing things slowly with them and giving them that leg up. So, man, but now we're getting into the homestead, like, sorry, uh, the homeschooling uh, aspect here. So like, man, teaching a five-year-old. So how, what's his hands-on as far as like the bees in that specific, specific Oh, he's, he's got his own bee suit. I've got a video. I'll put it on Twitter later for you. I've got a video where we were catching a swarm last year that was just up on the tree line. Like we live next to, next to the bush here. And so there was a swarm on this uh, gate, this wooden gate. And he's running around it with the smoker, smoking the bees while I'm brushing them into the nucleus. And uh, he, he's, he's very, very brave. He's been stung a couple of times and just gets on with business. He's, he's, he's not afraid of it. He understands where the honey comes from, how they get it, why we need to build the boxes bigger. Like he gets, he gets right in there. You know, bee, beekeeping is heavy, hot, heavy work. So a lot of it's watching, you know, you've got to scale it down for the children. It's not about not having them involved because it's easy without them. It's like, okay, hand me the, the grips now so I can pull this frame out. Give daddy the lid back. Otto, go, go scratch up some pine needles off the floor so I can fill the smoker back up. He's five years old. He lights the smoker for me. But people are just absolutely aghast at giving their children lighters and knives. If you've got a five-year-old boy, there's nothing he wants more than a lighter and a knife. Give him the lighter <laughs> and knife, but just teach him how to use it and supervise him. When I need a lighter to light the fire, I don't even know where they are in the house. I ask Otto when he runs off and gets me my little Zippo. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's perfect. But we, we you know, our, we, we're, we're homeschoolers, as you said. That's what we're working towards. And Otto should have theoretically in Australia started school this year. We're delaying him a year because we don't see the point. We think he'll get more value out of coming to work with me like he does most of the week and actually doing hands-on learning than sitting in a classroom in this like glorified daycare sitting, being told he's too noisy, sit still, keep your hands to yourself, which is my experience of 11 years of schooling. And and we, we give our children a lot of freedom, much to the aghast of some of our peers, but we've also got harder stop boundaries, also much to the disgust of our of our peers, they don't like that. They seem to not like the way we do everything, even though they're always complimenting on on how well behaved and well rounded our children are. But what I mean by that is, 
he's got he's got a lot of freedom. So the freedom is um, here's your lighter. If we want to go out the back and light the fire pit and, and cook some dinner on it tonight, he, we're going to teach you how to use it safely. Here's where the newspaper is. Here's where the kindling is. You can start it here. Um, and, you know, now he's been doing that supervised for a year. Like, you don't just do this overnight. You don't just give a kid a lighter and teach him how to light. This is first he watches dad do it. And then he hands mm-hmm. me the straw. And then he next time he hands me the kindling. And then one day he puts his hands in and holds the lighter with me. And then a few weeks later, he gets to try to, I take the safety off and he zips. Like this is a, this is a progression, right? It's not mm-hmm. just here the lighter, go be a good boy. Like, but eventually you get to the point where you've got this competent child that can do it. But if you ever burn something you're not meant to, the lighter's gone. If you ever use the lighter without telling dad you're about to use it, the lighter's gone. If you ever purposely burn your brother, the light is gone. And there's other consequences in our house that aren't popular either. But guess what? I've never followed through with anything once because he's never done it because he knows the right way to handle it. That's fun enough because it's pretty riveting. Uh, and he knows that the consequences are real and he'd rather the freedom, but the consequences that are there are real. If he misbehaves with that lighter, the light is gone and there's other privileges and there's other prices to pay for that behavior. And we're in a, we're, we're not to preach, you know, to the converted, I'm sure, but we're in a society where it's, it's uh, untoward to have consequences for your children. But then we've got children that can't be given any privileges because they can't be trusted for with them. Right. Yeah, it's not fair on the children. Like my children play on the front on the street and out the back with an ax, you know, chopping kindling for me because they've been given these boundaries. And it's not about how great I am or how great the kids are. It's it's just about we've we've done the work, we've we've sat down with the children when we would have preferred to be sitting on the couch, my wife and I, just debriefing after a big day of work with the boys. Go, Dad, we want to go back and cut some kindling. All right, darling, I'll be back in forty minutes. You know, because the boys they're ready to learn. This is school, this is life, and that's an investment in their future. And we don't have the right to say no to them. That's that's a really good point. So before. Uh... When, when we were trying to figure out our scheduling, you had said that uh, the boys go to uh, their homeschool group. What's that set up like? I'm curious about that. So because we haven't started formal, like we haven't enrolled in formal schooling yet, we haven't hit that age. Uh, but we also, my wife and I both work. Uh, we've got My wife is on the roster in the cafe a couple of days a week at the moment. And I, I don't have a roster, but I float around all the shops and I'm quite busy. It does suit us a couple of days a week to... Um, farm the kids out to have other people mind them for us. We used to be with Otto when he was younger. He was in a daycare a day a week and the daycare was fine, but we basically wrapped that system up and thought that's not quite for us anymore. So now I've got a few few mates of mine are actually trained teachers, ironically, that no longer want to teach because they're for a range of reasons. But, you know, one of them being they're just uninspired by the system. And they've got young children the same age. And this is about building your community. We're not preppers. We're not isolationists. We're not doomsdayers. Like we're community focused. We want friends and and companions through our lives that we can lean on and uh, they can lean on us. So once a week, uh, my eldest goes to a, we call it the homeschool group, but it's basically like a play group where my friend, sometimes it's just his son and mine. Sometimes there's four or five kids and they're in the backyard and they go out and they help him weed the veggies last week. They stole a heap of vegetables out of the market garden and set up a stall on the on the front street and went door knocking and sold sixty bucks worth of vegetables before hey. my friend realized what they were doing. Like, how cool is that? You got a five and a that's uh, amazing. Five and that. a three year old starting their own little business. 
but they go down to the river and they go swimming and, and they get hands on and do fun stuff. And it's just about, you know, visceral engagement, getting these kids hands on with things. Uh, and that'll formalize a little bit because part of what we want to do for homeschooling is, uh, I guess, uh, uh, sublet most of the reading, writing, arithmetic to, to tutors. So we'll, we'll be engaging our friends in our community going, look, just where Otto is at the moment, and, uh, our friend, you know, Ant or whoever, could we pay you for um, two one-hour sessions a week where you can sit down and help Otto with his reading and writing, whichever level he's up to. And Jake, I'm going to sit down um, for one of those classes so I can sort of understand the rhythm, understand the literature and, and help him a bit when he's at home. But I'm really, and this is uh, very unpopular to say, I am really not fussed at all about uh, Otto falling or Theo falling behind in reading, writing, arithmetic because we've got a loose homeschooling system. Um, I I did not believe for a second that a you know it takes ten years of a child sitting down half a minute, half an hour a day learning reading every day for the next ten years of their life. It's just a nonsense. And once you and then get still into the suck at it. <laughs> That's right. Like I, I left school and when I started emailing suppliers, working for my dad's record company, I, was, I didn't realize how poor my English and grammar was and I was absolutely mortified. So I had to upskill myself, you know, using spell check and the internet to do things. And I, I, I'm okay now, but I'm still not where I, I necessarily would have liked to have been. And I went through the system. But if you read literature, like you've got Paul, Paul Gatto out there, very famous advocate for homeschooling, but, but worked in the state-based schooling system. He talks about the fact that when you're, uh, he talks specifically about boys in this paragraph, when your uh, son is ready to learn reading and writing and actually motivated and interested, it takes about 20 hours of tutelage to get them to the point that they can then self-progress and self-educate with the, with the tools that they've been taught. That's, that's a couple of weeks. No, that's easy. Uh, and and we've already found like Otto's five, and for the last year and a half, he's been able to write his first name. He can write his surname. He can write the word farm. And we've never sat down and said time to learn to read. But he sees it on here. What does mm -hmm. that say? That says Walkie Farm, and Walkie's our name, Dad. Yes. Yeah, so and then he copies it down, and as he copies it, we say the letters. And it's not about formal learning. You know, there's going to be a time for that because you've still got to hit uh, benchmarks that the states hit for you. Otherwise, you're going to force your ch children into um, state-based schooling. But I really believe the, the kids are going to learn a lot of lessons, climbing trees, collecting eggs, playing with their friends, going swimming, doing kid things. And just a couple hours a day, sit down, let's do some formal learning, lean on community, bring in the experts and, and have a smaller uh, mixed age gathering where the, you know each child can sort of get the more nuanced attention they need. Because I'm not, a t I'm not a t attacking teachers. It's not the teachers. Imagine having a classroom. The classrooms in Aubrey are so busy because everyone left the cities and came to regional areas during lockdowns the last couple of years. Some of our classrooms have 40 children in them, 40 kids the same age. Yeah. What are you meant to do with that as a teacher? Like I know when we have friends' kids over in this, in this, you know, five or six kids in the backyard, there's a bit going on, right, to, to manage that. Imagine having 40 and then, and no then trying to pump all this information. Like it's the, the whole system is um, challenging for everyone involved as far as I'm concerned. And we're just um, trying to forge our own path through that the best we can. I love that. That's, that's fantastic. Uh, so I got a comment from Twitter uh, when I, when I published this, uh, like, Hey, I'm going to be interviewing you. Uh, Chepa wants to know, 
or he says, uh, enjoy seeing the kids helping out on the farm. Did Jake did Jake also grow up on a farm? What memories can he share? So you guys, you guys had your hobby farm. What kind of memories did you have growing up on that hobby farm? Yeah, sure. I I I didn't really grow up on a farm because I was a. Uh, I think I was about fourteen when mum and dad purchased that property. So and they've had it, you know, a bit under twenty years, and I only lived there a couple of years. So most of the things I used to have a Toyota Corolla. I used to put my motorbike helmet on and I'd go out there and I'd, I'd paddock bash it through the creeks and do donuts and <laughs> handbrakeys in the morning dew. Dad always wanted me to go and do handbrakeys in the morning so I wouldn't rip up all his grass. I'd just slide on the on the wet grass and I was always getting in trouble for destroying the pastures and getting bogged. Uh, and then one day I was doing jumps in the car and I, I nosedived the ground pretty hard and buckled the radiator and broke the diff and just like smashed the thing. So... That all stopped. So then we started motorbike riding. I remember I used to steal the wheelie bins from the house and, and we used to have this track through one of the creek gullies and we'd lay wheelie bins on the ground and then we'd put people between them and we'd come out of the creek. Oh and my over gosh. The wheelie bins and the people. Uh, I buggered one of my ankles doing that. And yeah, we just did a lot of reckless stuff like that, but no real uh, farming uh, memories. My I spent a lot of time with my paternal grandparents my dad's parents growing up they used to pick me up from school most days of the week because mum and dad were always at work my grandma went through her journal she keeps a daily journal when i was about 15 and uh added up that i'd spend about half my life with them half of you know i used to sleep over there all the time and wow. i spent a lot of time there so i was basically co-reared by my grandparents which i loved i just had they and they had a five acre block pretty close to town, only about a five-minute drive from the main street of Aubrey. My town's about 80,000 people now, obviously a bit smaller back then. And, you know, same thing. They used to let me go outside with a with a shovel and a machete and a lighter. And I just used to think I was Rambo off in the bush fighting trees and, <laughs> and lighting fires and and surviving till it was 7 p.m. and a little bit dark. And and that was that for me was so liberating because it was unsupervised. It was It was perceived unsupervised play and I felt responsible and I felt like I had autonomy in hindsight grandma and grandpa were always sitting on the porch reading a book watching but it's that I, I really believe that there's a lot of value in letting your children uh, think that they're not being supervised and and having that autonomy which is what we're trying to emulate so I just had a lot of chopping trees down and lighting fires and stirring up ants nests <laughs> and just general scallywag behavior scallywag but never, never chores. I was never made to do, like I make my boys do chores. I was never made to do chores. My grandma, this is hilarious. I've never spoken about this before because no one's ever sort of segued into it. But my grandma, who's the most um, beautiful woman, I call her BB because her name's Beverly. And when I was little, everyone used to call her Beverly. So I tried to copy her and I said, BB. And ironically, my grandfather, they told me to call him Papa. And I said, Baba. So now I've got, uh, they've got, Three, four, they've got seven grandchildren and four great-grandchildren and everyone in the family and most people around town call them Bibi and Bubba. And these were identities that they got given to them by me when they were in their 60s. So it's very, very funny how your identity can shift when you're in your 60s, you know, your name and everything sure. around that. But uh, my grandma used to give me, Bibi used to give me a uh, brass bell, ling, 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 ling. And she used to sit me in front of the TV. She'd wake up 
6.30 in the morning, every morning, and record a TV program called Cheese TV, which in Australia here was very popular, and that would have Pokemon and Dragon Ball Z and Yu-Gi-Oh! and all this stuff. And she used to sit up and record it and cut out the ads for me. She'd sit through an hour of this on the VHS recorder, and she'd cut out the ads. And then when they picked me up from school, she'd she'd, uh, make me strip my uniform off and get straight into comfortable clothes. She'd put me on the couch. She'd put an ottoman under my feet. She'd make me sit back and she'd bring me packets of chips. You know, poor diet. I had a poor diet and my grandma fed this, but she'd make me bacon and egg sandwiches and, and bring me chips and lollies and milos. And what I'm getting to, and I don't even know why I'm telling this story because it's revolting really how, how beautiful it was. But she would give me this brass bell. And when I finished with the packet of chips, um, I was forbidden from getting up and putting it in the bin. I had to throw it on the ground, literally throw the rubbish on the ground and ring oh the bell. God. And she'd come running and she'd pick it up. And it just became this this really uh, hilarious, fun game. And we just had the most beautiful relationship for years. And that that um that heart of service, because really she's got a heart of service and, and she wants to serve people. Such a beautiful thing. And she's so highly esteemed in the family. And now that they're sort of hitting senescence in their life, you know, the family's trying to rally around and 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 go, how can we so we call in every week and you know, do you need anything? Help help pay the bills, you know, they're in their eighties now and and um it's it's beautiful watching that arc. You know, it's sad on some level seeing the elderly people in the family that have raised you on that arc, but on the other end it's it's beautiful and when the family can come together, there's a lot of um dignity and grace in that. And so I don't really know the point of that story, but it felt it felt worthwhile. No, I love that. That's that was a really cute story. And uh man, your sounds like your grandma just loved you, just loved to spoil you. Just a little a little service bill. That's that's really funny. And and I it is I don't really necessarily think it was healthy like the way I used to have this cupboard. Grandma's usually aren't uh, healthy with their kids. Well, and, 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 that, and that's the thing. Like I used to have this cupboard that I'd open and every time I opened it, there was new toys in there. And I think about all the food she gave us and all the adoration and all the stuff she used to let us get away with and all the toys she's... It's a bit over the top, but it does it, it does sort of speak to the fact that the, it takes a village to raise a child. And, and my parents were very strict and, and quite de- demanding of my behavior in public and all those sorts of things, which is fine. And then when I went to my grandparents, I was pretty well behaved because I had this home base uh, thing, but I was allowed to blow off some steam and be adored and get a, be a bit of a scallywag and, and, and experience different things. And so like our sons go to my parents every Thursday night and stay Thursday night. And I take my wife out on date night. We pick a restaurant, we go out, put the phones away and chit chat, debrief on the week, talk about the next couple of weeks, compare calendars to make sure that they're in sync so we can do what we need to do. And our boy, my, my parents are gorgeous with my boys, and we're so thankful that we've got family that can look after them like that for us. But they don't treat the boys the way that we would necessarily. Well, we, they definitely don't handle them the way we would handle them at home, and they don't always treat them the way that we like. Because sometimes they feed them foods that we we would rather our boys not eat. But I keep we keep telling ourselves, my wife and I, they're at the grandparents' house. You know, there's freedom there, there's autonomy there. They're going to get spoiled. That's a glimpse into other things in the world. It's not about everything being a contraband and everything being illegal. You know, let them experience it and have fun. They're in a safe place. Our parents have great sure. values, you know, you know, and it's just, it's so powerful. And, and that's community. If you don't have grandparents and you don't have parents, you, you really need to put yourself out there, I think, and find these people because they're out there. You can, you can find really good peers and really good friends that will look after your kids here and there for you and build some community. You know, there's, there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. 
that is that is very very true oh man that i think that's a beautiful place to to wrap up on um you got stuff to do i've got uh i've got a family to to eat dinner with but man i i just loved this conversation this is maybe my new favorite so it's it's very close i got a, i got a i got a top five going <laughs> up in here i'm not loving it but but hey i uh, love it can you tell people uh where they can find you yeah, well, if you're in Australia, I'd love you to head to wolkyfarm.com.au and you can find out more about our business and you can purchase goods off there. And if we don't ship to your postcode, just send me an email and we, we'll work that out. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at Jake Wolke. Uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, but I'm definitely most active on Twitter at the moment, enjoying triggering all the people out there and getting some uh, honest conversation going. Awesome. I'll have links for all that uh, in the show notes. I really appreciate it, Jake. Good to meet you. Appreciate you having me and giving me the, the, uh, the platform and the time to have a chat. It's been lots of fun. Nice to meet you, Matt. Yes, good to meet you. And uh, for everyone listening, uh, farmhoplife.com is where you can find all our stuff. See you later. Inside of the city, the people are crazy. Out of their minds, they ain't got a clue. Headed west for Montana Left family and friends All I got now is you We both got new jobs A host and a homestead Thinking this was the life All that there'd be After our firstborn You had to stay home That's when the work got in the way for me well, I started Farm Hop Life. You'll come to your farm to help and to wander. Me and the family, a truck and an RV, send us a message and there we